back. It's time for episode 50 of Customers Who Click. I've got a great episode in store for you today with a good friend of mine, uh, Rishi Rawat. Rishi is a fantastic marketer who I've come to know quite well over the last year. And it's always a pleasure chatting with him. So if you get the chance, absolutely take it. We're going to be talking about storytelling today, the importance of crafting the story that will move your customers along a journey that will hopefully end up with that purchase. 95% of new products fail every year. We're talking thousands and thousands of failed launches. And if you're failing to stand out, of course, you're not going to get any traction. Rishi's going to do a much better job, though, of explaining this. So let's hear from him now. Hi, Rishi. Thanks for joining me again on the podcast. Welcome back. Things have changed a little bit since we last spoke, uh, I think, what, three, four months ago, I think. Do you want to give people a bit of an update? You know, what, what were you doing? What, what are you focusing on now? I think there's always been a focus on uh, product stories and using buyer psychology to write copy. I think what's different now is that our focus is singularly on the product page. And, you know, even that is somewhat going to be evolving because some websites don't necessarily introduce the product or tell the tell the whole product story on the product page. But I would say 90% of them, the product page is where the story is told. And so what we've done is we've kind of decided to, to be very clear about and very intentional about how we want to work with customers. And instead of saying, you know, hire us and we'll help you with conversion optimization, which is which is what which is what is typical, what we're saying now is that we will work on just one page on your website and we will relentlessly focus on that one page for 90 days and give to you a 20% lift. And it, you know, nine times out of 10, that page turns out to be the best-selling product page on the website. But it doesn't necessarily always have to be that case. But that's kind of, I would say that's been the shift is that now we are very intentional about the fact that we'll give a 20% lift on one page in 90 days and we work with Shopify websites and this is what we do. Cool. So yeah, very, very much uh, a targeted focus there. So yeah, so your big thing is storytelling then. Do you want to tell us a bit about that um, and how that applies to, uh, I guess, yeah, these these Shopify e-commerce stores. I think maybe a lot of people have 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 a hard time understanding how you can write a story about a product if it's not maybe some people don't think they're that you know interesting at times that's that's right that's that's the, and there, there's a lot of misconceptions and there's a lot that I have to kind of with myself even uh kind of go through so there's there, there are a couple of thoughts that I have over here one is that there is this initial reaction that storytelling basically is fantasy fantasy is made up uh, I'm a. I've created a better consumer product. Why would I rely on made-up stuff? And I think that just comes from a misunderstanding of what I mean by storytelling. So we, you know, I think there's a famous ad agency um, that said, you know, make the truth more interesting. Um, and that's kind of how I look at storytelling. It's not really about. It's not really about making up stuff. It's it's about telling stuff in a more dramatic way that can that can increase the likelihood of people noticing it. And also let's keep in mind that people aren't aware of this, but 20,000 new consumer products are launched every year, 95% of which have failed, but that's a lot of choice for consumers. So if you don't stand out through some mechanism, through some dramatic mechanism, then you don't even, you could have the, you could make the best, you know, toaster in the world if people don't know it exists. And if they, and, and those that stumble on it don't realize in five seconds what makes it unique, 
um, you're you're going to have a failed business. And so storytelling is super important from that perspective. And I think one of the things that's happened, and this is the final point I'll make about storytelling, is that Amazon has, of course, you know, it's like the black hole in the e-commerce space. You can't not notice what they're doing. And what has happened is that marketers are copying what Amazon is doing. But remember, Amazon is in a very unique position. I think their conversion rate is 17%. Um, they have complete dominance in terms of um, you know, awareness of what their brand is doing. So when consumers are buying on Amazon, they behave very differently. You shouldn't even call Amazon an e-commerce business, really, because the way people behave on Amazon is completely not representative of the data that we look at for every other e-commerce website. And so when they're on Amazon, they are, you know, they're saying, okay, I want to find the lowest price product with the highest number of reviews that solves the needs that I'm looking for. And therefore, Amazon over the last 20 years of optimization has kind of zeroed in on this idea of a very simple product page with five bullet points, very short copy that says, you know, here's what this toaster does. Here are 12,000 reviews of people that have bought this toaster and loved it. Here are some product images. That is just not going to work for you. And so um, that to say that Amazon doesn't use storytelling, therefore storytelling doesn't matter, I think is, um, is inaccurate. I've kind of gone a, a rant a little bit, but hopefully some of this is relevant no, to your audience. It, it makes completely valid points. Um, a lot of people, in fact, I've spoken to someone today who said, um, uh, what did he say? Oh, people, people shop on Amazon because of the reviews. He was kind of trying to make the point that, he, I think he was also almost making the point that other third-party review platforms are pointless. Uh, people only shop on Amazon because that's where the reviews are. They trust those reviews and almost any other reviews are pointless. But again, that's a separate conversation. Um, but it's a very different site, isn't it? They are, they're able to be very functional and just here is the product you're looking for. Here are the key features. Here are what, here's what people are saying about it. And you make, you kind of make your decision based off that. Um, whereas on other sites, and so I suppose in one way of kind of putting it is Amazon doesn't care about the brand so much. They don't care about the story. You've come there because you want to buy this particular product. They're going to show you all the options, the kind of pros and cons, the differences, and you're going to pick the one you want and go. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, Amazon is a place where people go to, to if I need to buy an air fryer or I my, my toaster is broken, or if I want to buy a cheap cable for my computer, I'm looking at I'm looking at a commodity that I'm looking to replace. 99%, 90% of transactions are on Amazon are commodity based. But imagine if you've invented a completely new type of hair dryer that people aren't even looking for. And so you kind of have a Facebook ad to even make them aware of the problem that they didn't know they had. How do you then take them to a landing page that says, here are the three features of this air dryer, um, hair dryer, go buy it. It's just not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, if you've got a product that even just a, a quality, I don't want to say there's poor quality on Amazon necessarily, but you know, if you if you've got a really high quality product in whatever industry you're in, you know, it could be like clothing, it could be chocolates, whatever. Um, you you want to convince people that there's a real reason why they should buy your chocolate, and then not just comparing price and reviews. That's right. Um, Something I've noticed you talk about quite a bit is this unfamiliarity barrier. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, that's that's a you know to me that's one of the core marketing principles that um, that I think is a huge opportunity. We talked uh, a while back about the fact that twenty thousand consumer products are launched every year, you know, ninety five percent of which fail. Um, think you know consumers are drowning in options. There is no keyword that you can think of. I mean, obviously there are keywords you can think of that people aren't bidding on because nobody's searching for them. But imagine searching for, um, you know, looking for a toaster or any kind of consumer product. There are 50 different companies standing, waiting on Google to pitch you and then maybe even retarget to you. And so what is happening is that consumers are being bombarded on slotted by marketing messages. And while while it's tempting to kind of, if you sell a air purifier, for example, or dog wheelchairs or whatever those categories might be, it's tempting to say that, you know, my product is going to sell itself because I've created the best product. I've invested in the right raw materials. I've done the quality testing. The people that bought my product tell me it's amazing. The problem is that 90% of people that come to your website are are not even able to cross that. They don't even care enough about you to actually seriously consider what your product stands for. And they, you know, they might bounce. That's one metric, but there's so many other things they do um, that, you know, that don't lead to a sale, obviously. And so overcoming that unfamiliarity barrier is the biggest obstacle. So while we're sitting and saying, well, our product is clearly better than the competitor, therefore our job is done. What we're missing out on is the fact that 98% of people that are coming to our website, 95% of people that are coming to our website don't even care enough about us to seriously even consider our product. So what? how would you suggest you get over that or help customers get over that? So like our copywriting framework has these two fundamental components. And the first one is why we exist. And then the other one is why this product must exist. So we kind of use why we exist as our way of overcoming that unfamiliarity barrier. So when someone first lands on the website, if we're, let's say we're selling a, a hand sanitizer or um, I'm looking around my kitchen to find other appliances, you know, a coffee grinder. When the user first comes to my website, I'm actually not really selling them on that coffee grinder first. What I'm first doing is I'm saying, I want you to buy into me. The way Amazon has invested the last 20 years in, why we exist. They've they've convincingly answered that. In fact, I would argue there's no retailer that's done a better job answering that question. So in order to compete with other retailers, and if I want to sell a coffee grinder, instead of focusing on like, here are the five features of this coffee grinder, I want to basically first say, listen, here is why you need to take a pause right now. I know you have 12 tabs open and you've got six other competing coffee grinders on your screen. Here is why you need to give me a f- extra five seconds. And that that question is answered by talking about why we exist because the user is not even willing to pay attention to what makes your coffee grinder amazing until they're convinced that you are worth listening to. And so why we exist is the first barrier and and we use it to cross that unfamiliarity barrier. Yeah, cool. So is that, um, so that could be what information around, yeah, like the values of the business, why, why they work with particular suppliers and the the kind of choices they make, which results in them then producing that coffee grinder. And then I'm assuming coffee beans or something as well, because I imagine that those fit 
quite closely for a business. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, the the amount of emphasis one has to pay on the why we exist. I mean, these are things that you would one would have to test and figure out how much. You know, obviously, price point is a criteria. So if it's a lower ticket item, people care less about why we exist. Even though I would say that that's not always the case. It depends on the product category. Sometimes people don't care enough. If I'm, you know, maybe maybe if it's like dog, you know, premium dog food, I care a lot about the company that is supplying it because there've been stories, for example, in the past that there's there's been tainted dog food from you know suppliers across the world. So maybe they really care about like, okay, I before I'm before you sell me on why this dog food is amazing and organic, I want to understand what makes you tick. And so we, you know, so I think. So it it would vary, but I would say you know principally what I'm interested as a consumer, what I'm interested is why did you choose this coffee grinder? What makes you qualified to sell coffee grinders? What problem were you trying to solve in your life that drew you to a coffee grinder? And the the great thing about it is that companies that are mass sellers or resellers they simply don't have a compelling reason. That's why they you know they will suffer. But if you've invented your own coffee grinder to talk about the frustrations that you had with coffee grinders, first of all, if you're an inventor, nobody invents a coffee grinder because there is, you know, nobody invents a coffee grinder if a, an an alternative was available commercially that they could have bought for fifty bucks. Nobody invests two years of their life prototyping a coffee grinder at home and annoying their wife if that there was a better solution out there. So, but I want to understand what made you go on for those two years. because the reason why I, the reason i say that is because if i'm buy, if i'm a consumer and i'm buying a coffee grinder there are there are of course many segments but most people are buying a coffee grinder because they have experienced coffee grinders in the past and they haven't found one that they've 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 been frustrated so the why we exist story helps bridge that that journey i've kind of i've gone in a, in in far too much detail but that's kind of how we look at it and it's it it changes according depending on what the brand is and and how much of a why we exist story they even have no that's fantastic so so yeah talking about uh, i guess yeah kind of getting another coffee grinder and just saying this is why you should buy from us yeah this is why yeah like you said this is why we're qualified to tell you this is a fantastic coffee grinder i mean i'm sure that's a, that might be a product that's quite difficult to really differentiate um or at least explain why those differentiating points are are that different and important but if you could then explain that you know this other company sells them but you know they've just got 10 coffee grinders listed uh they they just sell a variety of options you just find the one you want we sell our one coffee grinder because we think it's the best because we spent 2 years and I suppose you go into the storytelling there so you could say we spent 2 years traveling the world meeting yeah. with manufacturers coming up with the best blades and the best pulsation function for the grinder uh, and and at the same time we did it while testing out loads of different types of coffee beans so we can assure that, you it works with any type of coffee bean you could you could want and, and you know in the, you know and here's the other thing actually so you know we're living in a hyper specialized world so you know it's 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 you may your coffee grinder may be specifically designed for a specific type of audience so in that case you're 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 shaping the story for that audience so you're not you, you probably will not say that you know this coffee grinder does everything 
that a coffee grinder would want. Um, your product might be satisfying a specific price point. It might be satisfying a specific input criteria for a coffee machine. And so you'll kind of zero in on those, on those attributes. Um, so, it, you know, it's typically you're going to be, you're not going to, you're not going to tell the story as though the, I mean, if you were to say, tell a story that, you know, that basically says that this product is perfect and it's for every single coffee drinker, then you're, you're going to fail. Got People it, don't yes. want to hear that. People want to hear specifically how that it works for people you know, and it could be very esoteric. It could be like, you know, this, and, I, and you know, I'm getting stuck with the coffee grinder example, but the, the point is that, you know, I want to know how this specifically works for me and why, and again, we're talking about the why we exist story. So why did you make a coffee grinder? It's almost like an interview. It's really, you know what? I think a great way to look at this is as like a job interview. Someone applies for a job in your company. One of the questions we always ask is we look at what your technical technical skills are. That's what I call why this product must exist. But we also ask questions like, why did you, you, you could have applied for a marketing job anywhere. Why did you choose to apply a job at our firm? And people get into stories like, you know, I wanted to work with a small firm or I wanted to work with a firm that was focused on this niche and things like that. That's what I mean by why we exist. And, and, you know, yeah, yeah, no. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and just back on, uh, we kind of mentioned a misconception earlier around uh, oh, how storytelling is around like the fantasy and, and it's kind of made up. Are there any like other misconceptions around like storytelling? And, you know, I, I suppose one of the main reasons people don't do it is because a lot of people, I guess a lot of people don't think to, um, to be honest. But, um, but yeah, what, are there any other reasons people might not think of it that much or go, or go down that route? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, there, there, there are there are two answers I can give. One is there is a logistical challenge. If imagine you are Blue Nile and you are a jewelry retailer and you sell like, I don't know, 50 different types of jewelry. It You know, if I were to pitch the CEO of Blue Nile and say that, hey, we should focus on storytelling at the product page level, their head would explode because they'd be like, what are you asking me to do? That seems ludicrous. And also when they would look at the sales of individual SKUs, they'd be like, this, this specific SKU number 7,085 drives one sale a month. Why would I invest you know, money to write stories in that page? So that's clearly a, a use case where storytelling at the product page level is not important. But I would say in those cases, I would come up with a global product story. What I would do is on the product page, I would add a call to action. I would say, you know, why, why buy from Blue Nile or why are, in general terms, why we are, why you should buy jewelry from us. And then when you click on it, we would tell a story around that. And then of course that we can put on all their product pages. So that would be something we can do a statistical test around to see if that story resonated. Another case where stories may not be so effective is when you are selling something where it's a highly visual appeal type item. So I would say fashion, uh, you know, especially if you're selling t-shirts or clothing where people are buying it because the print looks kind of cool and the cut of the material looks really cool and they're buying it purely for that reason. I would say in that case, maybe storytelling wouldn't be as effective, but I would say even, even again, you know, even in those cases, storytelling does play a role, but I would say that it plays a slightly lesser role and a more supportive role 
to the beautiful imagery that you have on the page with the with the model in a lifestyle shot looking amazing i would say that would be a bigger conversion catalyst in that case versus the story yeah maybe it's difficult to write a story about an individual product it's probably more important than to make sure there's a real story around the brand that's right and that you've really worked on that because you know it's it's something i've mentioned quite a few times and with fashion in particular there's hundreds and um, well, probably thousands of fashion stores that pretty much look identical yeah and so if you're unable to really differentiate the products at a product level you've you've got to do something on a brand level and i i don't feel like a lot of these a lot of these brands do there are there are some really cool brands out there um you know obviously like nike nike have got their their whole their brand and their brand values that everyone kind of understands but there's so many stores out there that just don't do anything and if you just come up with some sort of story around what that brand stands for that alone should should help a bit shouldn't it absolutely and you know it's it's another thing i would say is that this is also a really important point that i should mention um is that first of all that story needs to be framed the use your user needs to care about that story so i think sometimes people misunderstand storytelling as hey almost like a the marketer being handed a microphone and me just simply saying just talk about what you want to talk about that's not really what i'm saying i'm saying that you know your story needs to deeply resonate with your buyer nobody cares about you and they shouldn't i mean you shouldn't be the you know you shouldn't be the person people are people are very selfish consumers are selfish they should be they are trying to make progress in their life and so you know i would say that that story that you're telling not only should you tell a story but you should tell a story that 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 relates to that audience yeah absolutely that's why people look at uh, you know people consider their brands so much they build out a brand which they think is going to appeal to a target audience and they have a specific target audience in mind and therefore if you're going to write stories and do storytelling that storytelling has to kind of match up with the same you know same brand values and target the same audience that's right and you know there's something i should add over here again i know that people get and i know this from experience you know i mean with all of the clients that i worked with when we introduce this idea of storytelling we know that we get an eye roll and they you know they just feel uncomfortable about around it and we've invented a mechanism that actually kind of allows them to be a little more natural we call this the hotel scenario but i i think your your listeners would benefit from this as well and the way i would frame this is i would say that you know while the idea of storytelling seems so it's people don't like it for a number of reasons i think one of the big reasons they can, the 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 ceo doesn't like it is because he feels or she feels that you know we we're kind of talking over our audience like where we where it seems like they don't they just don't they don't like the the feeling you get that you know when you're being you know heavy handed and the way i kind of explain it to them and the way, the analogy i give to them is that imagine if you met someone in real life and they said you know hey steve or hey joanna what do you do for a living and they said you said you know i sell coffee grinders and they were to say you know why do you sell a coffee grinder like why why do you focus on coffee grinders but not coffee machines or why not like matcha machines or why not like other kitchen appliances you would naturally get into a story with them and so i'm not asking you to do anything outside of that in fact the whole reason i got into this whole storytelling thing was because of something that happened to me 
when I first started my business, it, you know, I've been doing it for 12 years, but this happened to me like 10 years ago, I was working with a client of mine. And what happened was that I was asking him about, you know, we were working on his best-selling product page. And I said, Stephen, can you tell me a little bit about how you sell this outside of the website? He says, oh, sure. He says, you know, I actually travel across the country to these um, health um, conventions. So he'll travel in Michigan, Florida, different places. And at these health conventions, he would put a he would put a stall where he would talk about his product that he was selling and people would come up and ask questions and he would kind of engage with them in a conversation. He said, you know, we sell a lot. Like I'd sell a lot just by having these conversations. And I said, can you tell me about some of the objections they bring up and how you address them? He told me this beautiful explanation for their objections. One of their objections was around price point. And he gave this beautiful explanation. And when I heard him say that, I was like so convinced myself. I was like, that's like, that is the most perfect explanation for price resistance for your product. But when I looked at the product page, I didn't see that at all. And so my thought was, what if I could take Steven and I could scale him instead of him having to travel to all these conventions and individually tell a story of, even though individual storytelling is very powerful, but Steven can't do that, you know, for the 20,000 visitors he gets on his website every day, every month. What if we could kind of encapsulate that on the website and that's really how we came up with a test idea where on the product page, right next to the price point, we um, it was a higher ticket price point. So there was right next to it, there was a button that said, you know, uh, price explanation. And it was designed for people who were hesitant about the price to want to click. And so we ran that as a test and there was a 30% improvement in conversion rates of the bestseller. And he was able to sell 30,000 extra units every year because we, we we did this experiment. We did experimentation optimization for a whole year with him for many years, actually. But what we had done is we had encapsulated that story that Stephen had told me in person. And then we kind of essentially repurposed it on the product page. That's kind of when I first realized that because we changed nothing else on the product page, by the way. The price remained the same. The description remained the same. Everything remained the same. All we had added was this extra storytelling element, and we got 30,000 unit sales increase. That's really when I realized 10 years ago that there is something here about storytelling. So I think every brand has a very compelling story. First of all, starting a business is incredibly hard. Nobody is starting us, there is some force that is keeping these entrepreneurs moving forward. All I'm doing is applying an interrogation process to extract that story. So the story already exists. This whole idea of like, we don't want to use a story or we want to use a story is a moot point. The story already exists. What probably doesn't exist is it isn't framed or it it isn't packaged in a way that is super compelling. And that's why you would use an expert, an outside expert, expert, to extract it because you do need an outside perspective on bringing out the story. It's not something you can do on your own because you are so close to the problem. You need an outside expert, but once the story is brought out, it'll make sense to you. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And that last bit in particular, um, yeah, you would, when you've been in the business for so long, you get so close to it that you kind of lose, almost lose sight of that, that story and stuff a little bit. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, marketers speaking to sales teams, speaking to customer service to find out what customers are actually saying, yeah, and what and what convinces them to buy. Because I, I've got one client who um, they know that 
they are four times, I think it's four times more likely to convert a customer if they're on the phone with a salesperson as opposed to the website. And there's an issue there because we want the website to perform better, obviously. But the key thing really is what is it about that sales experience which is driving so much, so many more sales? What, what are those salespeople doing? And how do we, just like you said, how do we uh, replicate that onto the website and give that, give that experience there? Um, exactly. There's a, a couple of things you mentioned. Um, one, one was a bit earlier around clicking a link saying, you know, why buy from us? And then just there again about that price explanation. Um, is that, I know something I've seen you mention, mention on LinkedIn before, I think is active participation. Is yeah. that is that that sort of thing? Yeah, do, do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is actually I think active participation is one of the most interesting ideas ever. Um, uh, no, I shouldn't say ever. That's, but a, it's a, very, that's a huge it's a, claim. <laughs> that's a huge claim. Yeah, it's totally not scientifically backed. No, but I, oh, here's here's what I'll say. Here, here is one of the I think uh, any marketer would be able to relate to this, and we have. Tons of empirical data on this. We we use active participation a lot. And I know your listeners would be wondering, first of all, what the hell is this? But before we kind of talk about it, it's important to understand philosophically what it actually means. So one of the challenges we have as marketers is that no brand has just one narrow audience. The brands have multiple audiences. And so one of the questions that comes up a lot in conversations with clients is that, are you suggesting that every every person who buys from me will care about a story? Because it's a really interesting question because does everyone care about a story? And the answer is no, actually no, that they don't. Maybe only 20%, I don't know what the number is specifically, but maybe 20% of people care about the story. So this is why we kind of came up with this idea of active participation. So the way it works is that it's almost like a choose your own adventure type experience. So when a user comes to the product page, we are kind of just showing them the product description the way the way they would expect to see it. But in that product description, maybe on paragraph number two or three, we start injecting some behavior-based questions. And it has to be done very naturally. It's very different than a wizard. So we shouldn't confuse this with a wizard, even though it does function in a similar way. And the idea is that what you're basically doing is you are teasing out things that people care about. So for example, if as you're weaving this into the conversation, you're giving them options for them to explore further details that they care about. So a great example, this is a this is a great example of active participation is that when you are on your product description, if I was set, going back to the coffee grinder, and just to be clear, I do not work with any coffee grinder business. So I'm using an example that is does not match up with our client base. But if I was on the coffee grinder product page, I would first of all start off by telling the story about the coffee coffee grinder, but maybe in the second in the second paragraph, I would ask a question. I would, and it has to come out very naturally. So that's why it has to be very subtle. But the question effectively would say, "Have you ever bought a coffee grinder before?" Because to me, if I look at it as an analogy of a sales uh, of a store and a salesperson, if I was a salesperson and someone came up to me and said, "I'm looking to buy a coffee grinder," I would absolutely want to know if they've bought a coffee grinder before versus someone who's buying their very first coffee grinder because the story would be completely, it's almost like a different journey, different story uh, journey. And if someone says that they've already bought coffee grinders before and this is a, their model broke, for example, their machine broke, they're looking for a replacement. 
the story is going to be very minimal, minimalistic. If they say that I already have a coffee grinder, but it makes too much noise and I'm, I'm really on the fence about if I should buy a new one, then my story would be very different. And if they say I've never bought a coffee grinder, I would first educate them on how you've missed out on the most important aspect of enjoying delicious coffee. And then I would kind of gently nudge them to, towards um, buying my coffee grinder. Now, the problem is on the product page, how do you speak to these three people simultaneously? You can't. So we've, we've created this method of active participation where the user is interacting with us in a very subtle way while they are reading, while they are consuming our story. And then based on their, their interaction, we're able to categorize them in a bucket. And then based on what bucket they fall into, we then personalize that story to match that scenario. Okay, so... Yeah, I can see what you mean. Then it's it's not quite a wizard because you're not just saying answer this question, cool. Because you've answered that question, we're going to ask you this question, and like leading people down almost like a quiz. Um, but in a sense, it's doing the same thing because right. it's it's taking what they're telling you, changing the content on the page to provide what that person needs. Yeah, I mean the 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 problem with wizards have two problems. Number one is that the 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 mental framework users use for it is that oh i'm going to interact with something i mean it you know it's it's the the word wizard itself means something so that that was i wanted to kind of get away from that but the other problem with wizards is that they're very product centric right so they kind of tell you on what how which product to buy um and i wanted to kind of and people know that they're going to be recommended a product at the end of it. So I'm already biased against it because I know it's basically a sales tool. And that's why for me, I wanted to kind of think about a much more natural, subtle way to start injecting some of these questions in the conversation that's happening on the product page itself to kind of have the same wizard type experience without us taking the user away from the product page and saying, okay, we're going to ask you seven more questions. And at the end of it, we promised to give you the right product. I wanted to be more natural so people didn't feel like they were being taken away from, you know, where they wanted to be. Yeah, got it. That's really interesting. Um, it kind of reminded me of, actually, of I'm running a survey with a client at the moment, um, but, but on their, specifically on their blog form, uh, blog pages, um, we're just trying to find out how much people know, how knowledgeable people are about what they're looking at on these pages. Yeah. And uh because the, the purpose is we, we're looking at rebuilding the website and we want to create this experience because we know there are people who are less knowledgeable. We know there are people who are experts in the area and the experience is going to be massively different. Um, it's quite a custom product. Um, but it was really surprising the number of, out, out of a, I think we're re- ranking it one to seven in knowledge. Um, we've had, I think, two or three people have said five and that's the highest score we've had. Yeah. So loads of people are telling us, and and this kind of matched up with my expectations. Really, you know, when I actually pitched this client, I, I even said, you know, this website does nothing for me because I'm relatively unknowledgeable, non-knowledgeable. What's the word there? Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, I, I'm relatively uninformed yeah. about uh, about these particular products, but the site does nothing to actually help me and point me in the right direction. Um, so this survey is actually kind of helping me prove that point and and showing that 
we need to be tailoring for these different levels of of interest and knowledge, knowing that there are also experts out there because those experts won't be looking at these pages in the first place. I don't think that's right, and that and and that's a really key point. And this this awareness levels uh, segmentation that you talked about is super important. And in this case, I think as you're alluding to that, people who are super aware wouldn't even be here. Um, I think in that case, you know, there would be an overwhelming number of people that are lower in the awareness stage. And so therefore you want to personalize for them. But one of the traps that companies fall into with these, these kind of these analysis is that they, if they were to conclude that 80% of their audience is in the low, relatively low awareness stage, they say, Hey, since that's the biggest piece of the pie, let's kind of go after them. And, and what active participation does is it says, you don't have to alienate 20% to get to the 80%, what if we were to create these smart triggers that would allow them to just self-segment? Essentially, it's a self-segmentation tool. Let them self-segment themselves and then personalize, set a cookie, and then you can personalize the story indefinitely, really, um, because they already have told us who they are and what their interests are. And now we, whenever they come back to the website or if they continue with their journey, we're kind of aware of their awareness level and then speaking to them in a way that respects that awareness level yeah absolutely yeah i, I think I, I agree like what one thing you could take this data the wrong way if you don't analyze it properly and you could say that the no one scored more than a five therefore no one on our website is an expert in this so when we rebuild the website we need to we need to guide people we need to really handhold people along the way and just ignoring the fact that there will be those people who are they know exactly what they're doing. They're happy to fully customize this product on their own, but we will have built the site in a way which kind of annoys them a little bit. And uh, maybe is a bit condescending because it tre- treats them as if they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake you think a brand could make when they are going, if they are going down that route of storytelling? So they know that's what they want to do. Um, yeah. What do you think is the biggest mistake you can make? Well, I think there are a couple of things. The first one is that not having a strong point of view with their story. You know, for example, if you're selling shoes to say, we, we, you know, your why we exist story is like, we wanted to, we wanted to make a better pair of shoe or, and why this product must exist. Those are the two aspects of a story. You're saying something like, you know, well, we, we tested other shoes out there and we just didn't think anything really matched up to our specific needs. And so we made our own shoe. That's a that's a story for sure. It's a it's a lame story, and that's my point. Is that you know if you're going to craft a story, make sure your story has a really strong point of view. Make sure you've looked at your competitors, and no one is owning that space. Um, you don't want to be, you know, coming up with a story angle that is already being used by an incumbent. So if you can avoid it, avoid it. That's one mistake. Is that the stories don't have a strong point of view, and. Also, the other one is something that I mentioned earlier, which is that you need to craft your story. Nobody cares about your story. I mean, and, and you know, this is the contrarian part of my whole process is that I'm talking about the importance of why we exist and why this product must exist. I get tons of feedback from marketers saying that no consumers don't care about these things. And I totally agree with them. I'm just saying that these are the dimensions on which we need to influence the buyer, but we need to frame it the user shouldn't feel like they're sitting in for a infomercial where the founder is talking for 30 minutes about what makes the founder so great nobody cares about that however if you can if you're a good copywriter and it all boils down to good copywriting 
you can write it in a way where the person is reading it and nodding their head and saying this is my story this is this perfectly relates to the progress that i am trying to make in my life because that's what people are trying to do is they're trying to get from point a to point b your product is a mechanism and that's all it is it's a conduit to get from point a to point b that's its purpose and so but if you can if you can frame it in a way that the person feels is saying micro yeses as you're telling the story that is what you want so you need to frame it in a way where it's all about them so those are the two things that i find are missing when brands do kind of you know those are two things i think they need to be very mindful about as they start thinking about using storytelling as a and the great thing about this by the way well and you'd appreciate this and your audience would appreciate this as well is that ab tested we're not saying that you know stop the presses and say we're going to be focusing on storytelling for the next you know 6 months on on one of your landing pages focus on storytelling and see what effect it has on on conversion rates and if the data suggests that it's working then double down on it otherwise you know don't yeah absolutely like you don't have to yeah like you said you don't have to um put a pause on everything and just focus on storytelling for a bit you could pick a page find a page with some de- decent traffic and and test it out i suppose it reminded me of a video uh actually for for dog food which you also mentioned earlier and this it was used on their landing page so specific specifically created landing page for ppc advertising i think um and the video was very much this is us this is this is it wasn't even why we decided to create our own dog food really it was it was very much me 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 and i remember watching that video thinking this is just like does nothing for me right um and it's or right, i'm not a, i wasn't a possible buyer really but also i i've my, my parents have a dog and a, i want to get a dog at some point so it's still of interest to me and this video gave me no reason why i should actually buy this product it was entirely about the founders and about a bit of their story in creating the business but it was just it, it did nothing for me um so i think i think i did actually suggest to them look just you know make it more about the the audience their dogs um why this dog food is so much better for them um but from a kind of a storytelling point of view and link to that why did you decide to make this dog food i think in the video it kind of described it as oh we just saw there wasn't an option for raw dog food in the market that that was pretty much the story mhm just uh, one kind of almost last question and it's i know it's a bit different it's a bit off topic from the storytelling but it's something we actually talked about a few weeks ago when we had a chat and site speed site speed is something when when we're doing conversion rate optimization and testing and things site speed is something that comes up a lot as almost the ultimate thing you need to be worried about if your site speed goes up forget about the test you want to keep that site to be down so remove everything from your website what do you think about that i'll um i've got a, few, a bit more to say on it but i'll let you uh yeah what what's your opinion on that on the general site speed issue i mean i think it's i think you know everything in balance is good i think being aware of site speed issues is important but at the end of the day what matters is the customer experience and if you what you are selling is really important and if people really care about it 
and if they care about you they will be very insensitive to those minute details um you know if if i went to if i went to google and google was you know slower by 4 seconds randomly tomorrow it would make zero difference to my behavior um same is true for most things that i care about so i i think i think you know i think you can put these you can blow these things out of proportion so my view is that if look uh, the unfortunate part is that there is only one way only one guaranteed way to maximize site speed which is to remove anything that lags slight site speed problem with that is that if you if especially like we talked about active participation where there's all this like javascript stuff that's happening um if you remove all of that then you have nothing so for me it's like well it's a balancing act you 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 want to you want to focus on you want to differentiate yourself but at the same time you know i mean you don't want to you can't do it you can't sacrifice the differentiation at the altar of site speed so that's my take but i'd love to know your take i know you've you've got a lot of experience in this um yeah i'm i'm definitely down the kind of same lines as you i i think if you have to sacrifice a little bit of site speed to create a better experience on site then that's fine obviously test it if you converge rate to do plummet um with a higher site speed then it's something you need to look at again and, and see how you can work out a way of making it quicker but i think for me you know if if a site i haven't i've never really timed it but if i'm on my phone or something and a site takes 10 15 seconds to load i don't think i really notice yeah i think what i do notice is if every page on that website takes 10 15 seconds to load so it's a great point if everything i do is taking that time that might start to wind me up a bit but it also i know it depends on the business you know if it's and maybe it's because i have a little bit of you know, i guess like technical experience i i kind of understand how the back ends of these businesses work so sometimes you know if i'm submitting for a quote or something or insurance there's that expectation in my head that that page load is going to take a little bit longer because it has to do the calculations and the api calls and things um so maybe i i have a little bias view on it but yeah i'm keep keep it quick but you know if 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 you want to put the plugins and things on and it doesn't really cause that noticeable a difference i suppose one thing is you know you you can run a test a site speed test but compare that to actually just opening up the your phone opening up the site and doing doing the test yourself or getting getting people to do it you know you might see the site speed increase by 1 and 1/2 seconds which could be i don't know like a 50% increase but if no one notices then it's it's not a massive deal is it yeah no i i i i i tend to overweight on the side of the experience and overweight on the side of like you know what the person is getting and um i totally agree i mean and i i understand it's a, i i totally understand how it's something that is a hard decision to make and i'm we're, we're you and i are not suggesting that you know abandon site speed but we're just we're just cautioning against this mindset that says anything that even remotely sniffs of being able to potentially reduce my site speed is off the table well then you just really there's very little you can test because testing by definition is going to add some load and so and if you're adding extra elements that kind of you know 
add some friction to the process. There's good friction, there's bad friction. And I think site speed also is one of those things where it can be good and it can be bad, should be in balance. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, like just test things. The, the worst case is where, where someone says, we're absolutely not going to do that because I think it will affect site speed. Yeah. You shouldn't really be making any decisions based off, I think, <laughs> this. You should like do some do a lot of research, put the data together, run a test. If the test then shows, yeah, increase site speed, decrease conversion rate, fine. Job done. Agreed. Cool. Just before we finish then, um, pet peeves. Pet peeves in marketing, either as a professional in the industry, um, or, or just personal stuff you see on websites that you uh, bug you a bit. You know, there are two that I can think of. I think there's a lot of unoriginal marketing that I see and there's a lot of predictable predictable things that are being copied. There's so many things that, uh, you know, like um, I'll give you a great example. So here, here's, here's something you might appreciate. So you know how on category pages, when you're on a category page and we have these little thumbnails for product images, you do mouse over. One of the very common things you'll see is they'll say um, there's a, like a quick add to cart option there. And I've never understood what, why that's there. And I've actually even, we've even tested for a client where we removed it and it had no effect at all. So, you know, it's totally meaningless because no one is using, no one is buying the product directly from the category page. There, there might be a very small sliver of a use case where you are, you know, a 10th time repeat buyer and you get to the category page and you want to buy right from there. So what I find in marketing that's happening a lot, and I and again, you know, what I'm what I find in marketing that's happening a lot is that someone comes up with something innovative. Oh, another thing that you might remember is those pop-ups that say 20% off, and the alternative to close it is is to say something like, I don't care about discounts. And that was kind of cool and clever, but you know, everyone copied it. And so there's a lot of copying that's going on. And and I I I don't think that's that should be considered good marketing. That was um, uh, that was actually going to be my my example of a pet peeve. Um, <laughs> I, I was looking at one just earlier, actually, um, and I think I, I sent it over in a, a a piece of content I've written for someone else. Um, the example was a, a website. I think it's I think it's a pop up. I think it was a pop up on the website. And it says save fifteen dollars off your next order of a hundred dollars or more, and start devastating, which is brand related your competition with special offers on gear and you've got the options of yes only fools say no and they kind of uh like a ghost call to action underneath which is i'm a fool that says no <laughs> that's it's just annoying like that's really i think horrible. you can do it quite well like you can say like yes i'm willing to miss out on a discount or something but when it gets to the point where you're just insulting someone it gets a bit gets a bit risky really well, and more importantly, the fact that it's not even original, right? I mean, I think some clever marketer four years ago, and I give a lot of credit to them for having thought about this idea, great. But I don't give credit for the next 20,000 marketers who literally just took a screenshot of it and told their designer, we need to design the exact same thing for our website. That's that's what I hate. Yeah. Yeah. And actually on your, your first one, I know it's more, more just around copying ideas and things, but the quick view. Yeah. Um, a theory which I'm I'm currently testing out, or no, soon we'll be testing out, is that people don't necessarily buy from the quick view or the quick buy. 
but it helps them find the product they want to look at quicker. So they get to see from the, from the category page, they get to see more product images, the reviews, product details, they can see which sizes are in stock via that pop-up and they can quickly check that pop-up for three or four different products. And then when they find the one they want, instead of clicking quick buy, they will click through to the product and view all the details on that product. That's, it's kind of my theory. No, you bring up a, you bring up a really good point. Now, here's what I would say. This is really interesting because if I were to talk to a client now to ask them this question, which I have, and they were to say exactly what you said, that we have data to support this or we this is why we did it, I would just absolutely respect that, and I would I would just completely get off, um, get off from the from that from that debate. But what but what they typically will say is that we never thought about it. If yeah. that's the part that I'm opposed to is like, if there's a reason for it, I'm all for it. And there must, there, there, if there's a reason, even if it's a, if it's a reason I disagree with, I'm all for it. But if you were to say that, you know, well, that's the default Shopify setup. Well, that's not a good enough reason to me. Yeah. Cause, I'll, cause it just becomes, everyone does it. So it must be the right thing to do. Yeah. Which isn't very, very research and data backed. I suppose if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt. There's no reason not to have it. But, yeah, but, I, but I know what you're saying. Like, it still increases the cognitive load, right? For the user, you're, it's one other thing. It's it's, it, it's talking about site load. You've now added another widget to the website. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those are the those are the areas where the CEO needs to cut back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose if if you're worried about site speeds and you've got widgets and things that don't contribute anything, then yeah, definitely get get rid of them. Just finally, then, before we end, um, do you feel there's a particular area of marketing which is underrated? Yeah, so that's that 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 also is a a really a really good question, and um, you know I think that there is a pretty big disconnect between what a marketer does and what a salesman does, and there are some examples where they overlap. So one great example is direct response marketing, and um, I think that is something you know. The ab- having the ability to sell in a quantifiable way and then tie the sale back to your marketing efforts, I think that is something that is a underrated aspect of marketing, um, and, and you know not not enough marketers are kind of exposed to that side of it. So I think that's something that you know we need more marketers who have experience with direct response marketing. So because it's so brutal, and if you get it wrong, it can cost big time. Um, so I, I really like that discipline. And I know that not all marketers agree with me on that, but that's just my view. No, I'd agree with that. I think um, having some sort of sales experience is, is incredibly valuable. And not just for a marketer either. You know, whatever aspect of a business you're working in, really, I, I think having some sort of sales experience, especially early, if you can get it in early in your career, um, you know, it, it's, it's helped me walk into rooms and, and pitch for investment or pitch whole new business ideas to the you know the CEO of a business because I had that sales experience, which allowed me to basically walk in and have a conversation. And because effectively in both those cases, I'm selling. Yeah. So yeah, it's, um, it really helps, but then also it builds that mindset of how to sell to people, which you then bring into marketing. So completely agree with you there. I think, um, I think people should at least, you know, give it a go. If it's not your first job, try and do like a little placement or something within your company and try and, you know, sit with that sales team and, and and really get involved with it. Same as customer service, really. I'd recommend everyone, you know, if you don't do it as a full-time job, fine, but 
go sit with that team, really learn what they do, speak to some customers. I agree completely. That's a great point. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic stuff once again. Uh, really appreciate you joining me. What's what's the best way of people contacting you, finding out more? Um, anything else you want to mention? Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, it's I was looking forward to to this chat all week. So thank you for uh, giving me the chance to kind of express some of my thoughts. I think um, the best way to kind of connect with me, if if your listener is on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So just search for Rishi Rawat, um, and I'm sure the link will be in your show notes. And the other place, I guess, if they're really interested in the kind of stuff that I'm I'm thinking about and I'm, you know, the, what I would tell them is that I study on average around 30 to 40 e-commerce websites every week. Um, and because I'm essentially probing to find the best ideas, I know that the best ideas exist in like small niche websites that most people haven't even been at been to. So I like to kind of extract them as quickly as I can. Um, if I notice them, um, what I do then is every week in my newsletter, I share some of those examples, quick digestible examples with a screenshot, some annotation completely like not polished at all, but it kind of gets to, you know, what I notice, why I think it works. And it's stuff that they can essentially apply directly. It's, it's all actionable stuff. If they're interested in that kind of stuff, then um, I will also share with you the link to my newsletter. And it's simply frictionless-commerce.com forward slash join, J-O-I-N, and it'll take you to the sign-up page, but I'll include it in the show notes as well. Yeah, I'll make sure it's there. It's uh, it's definitely worth signing up to. I've um, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, there was one you did on reviews, uh, kind of redesigning that review experience. Oh, that's right. It's uh, really, really good. Awesome. Like, thank you so much again for joining me. Thanks, Will. I appreciate I appreciate your time today. Thanks. Thanks a lot. If you're not crafting that story, have a good think about it very soon. You know, it could make a massive difference to your business. As as Rishi put it, it's not about writing a piece of fiction alongside your product. It's about crafting the story on the product page that kind of moves the customer from becoming aware of your product to understanding how they can use it and benefit from themselves through to the purchase. Have a think about how you can build storytelling into your business, whether at a product or a brand level. It'll help you stand out and capture the attention of those customers who want to be engaged. You know, they want that story because no one buys to just fulfill a function. Uh, they buy to solve a pain point. If you want to chat to Rishi, get him on LinkedIn. He's pretty active over there or head over to frictionlesscommerce.com. For anything podcast related, drop me a tweet at Will Lawrence. I'd love to know what you thought about the episode. Next up, I've got Rachel Vaughan-Jones on, and we're going to be talking about creating value through subscriptions. But until then, keep those customers clicking. Mm-hmm.